Oh gosh, how are you guys? Sorry, that's yeah, back. It's fine. Yeah, don't worry. What is this chair you have? I'm very interested in the chairs. <laughs> you don't know the nine to five furniture. Oh wow, what it's called? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's the background really in the Midwest <laughs> or something, like in a family of hunters or something. Isn't that right? It, sorry, so what do you say? Did you grow up in a family? Like, I feel like if you don't know the, your brand of chair, I feel like this directionally is the same as you, you come from like a family of hunters in the Midwest. Or it's, I know this is not. What, what are like, you talking about? That's a crazy connection. That is an insane connection. No way, totally. I'm into it. I know. I think there's definitely like probably some, some interesting stuff you can correlate the two. Yeah, no hunters. Farmers, actually. Farmers, not hunters. Got it. Yeah. You're close. You're close. Yeah, people that are builders, really, in a way, yeah. versus like people pushing papers or something, which would be like, which is like me now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Building things. Now I'm just pushing papers. So right now, I don't. I just mean like bureaucrats versus builders. I'm not accusing. That would be too early in the podcast to accuse you. Of. I'm accusing. I literally run a bank now, so I'm like, this got pushed with a paper pusher, which is amazing. So, it's fine. <laughs> well, let's start. Let's start with an intro. Yeah, William, well, thanks so much for joining us here. So this is, the for anybody listening, the week between Christmas and until the early January, where most people are actually vacationing, but we are all founders on this podcast. And so I'm sure that everybody is working this week. I know I definitely am. Everybody else working this week. William, you said you had back-to-backs today, so obviously you're working. Yeah, I'm in the I'm in the office right now. It's a little quiet. That's awesome. It's a little quiet, but there's there, there's there's maybe like a dozen of us holding down the front. Right. Yeah, that's great. Thanks so much for being on. I'll, I'll let Julian take it away as the uh, so, resident host of this podcast. Yeah, 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 I'm so happy to be hosting or whatever this job is. And so Kevin is good enough to introduce us. I'm fascinated by a bunch of things, your background, and your more more maybe more. In the foreground than anything, it's like your mission orientation as a founder. Yeah, I, you started, obviously, like you worked on Plaid for so many years and you did it essentially straight out of Bain. Is that basically right? Yeah, barely. So I was actually an intern when I was like 20 at Bain, but I like to tell people I worked there for longer so they think I'm older and cooler. <laughs> but in reality, I actually, yeah, I started Plaid my senior year in college. And then wow. I only thought it was, I was like, Zach, who was my co-founder, Plaid, and I, when we started, thought it was just going to be like, no, we're just going to go build some stuff and just hang out for a year and nothing's mm-hmm. really going to work and then we'll go back to our day jobs. But ended up actually getting a little bit more legs than we thought and ended up a little bit more legs. Really never having an actual job. <laughs> so. We were talking before the recording about this kind of this dark period where companies that when you look at the arc or you read the Wikipedia page or something. It's like, oh, this magic thing happened. Then this mm-hmm. magic to tell you these milestones yeah. from a, like a retrospect. But I'm curious about kind of the dark period where things weren't working. Like, what was happening there? Was there ever a period of desperation and I didn't know what the hell I was doing? Or And also, I'll tell you on to that too. William, William, do you mm-hmm. remember where we actually met in person? That was back at SHIP. That was yeah back at the Homebrew event. Yeah, it was like OG. Like, it was like 2014 yes. San Francisco. So the reason I wanted to bring that up was because like of that batch of homebrew companies, I think that we were the standout at the time. And I don't think like that you guys definitely were not no. known as at all. And I just want to highlight because we're doing this for other founders. And I was at like 
peak hype cycle out of the gate. And then there you guys are. I was like, oh, you're doing this fintech thing. Nobody really knows where you are. And then like just it completely changes. Also being in the hype cycle fucking sucks. But obviously went through a period of that. Maybe still is in there as well. But that's what we're, why I kind of wanted to mention mention that there with, with Julian's question. No, I, I think it's totally right. I, I, I come to tell my team, it's like wandering in the desert. It's wandering in the desert for a while and you try to look for the promised land. And I think one of the, maybe we'll get to it later, one of the things that I'm most happy about probably over the past couple months is it validated the belief that startups take a long time and they're really because I think in 2020 to 2022, let's call it. Yep. There was this narrative. I'm like, oh my God, if you like bet on the right crypto, if you bet on the right shit coin, like you can be a billionaire overnight. Or Tiger's not right a billionaire oh. around you after two years. You're doing I hated that so and, much. And like, I've always said, like you guys too, like, I've always had this belief that, hey, like companies take 10 years, right? They get like years to maybe figure out the fuck you're doing in like 10 yeah, years. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then there's this narrative shift about three years ago. They're like, no, you can actually become like a billionaire in 18 months. If you like, if you're smart and you do it right. And you like understand how to play the right cycle. And so you feel like maybe a lot of us that have just grabbed a lot in the desert for a long time, it was like super demoralizing. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, it sounds dark over the past three months, pretty much everybody who was like that just got their faces ripped off. And so, how does that make you feel? Yeah, that... cool. Like I understand how the world works. Like my therapist. Mm -hmm. Is that yes, yes. Yeah. I felt the same way. I felt crazy for that that period of two years. It was just like everybody was just becoming millionaires and billionaires. I'm like, what? Who the fuck's using your product? What is this even yeah. solving? Yeah. I feel weird about the people that during the dot com boom because some of them are on TV shows now. We won't name them explicitly. But it's so, just what did this guy's company do? Mark Cuban, you mean? It could be anyone. <laughs> I could be talking about anyone. And so it's but it's what the fuck did he? And you got to look it up because it's yeah. not like PayPal, right? And, and some people, I guess more power to them that can make it work. But I agree with you. You only got to, and what it, at least for me, is you only get a couple of drops, those 10 year shots. So you really got to care about the thing it is that you're doing. And you've actually basically taken a second 10 year bet in essence. Yeah, I think if you're super smart, uh, you maybe figure out some cheat code. I wouldn't put myself in that camp. I think companies say 10 years and it takes yeah. five years of probably like grinding it out, not knowing if you have probably in the middle of that cycle where Kevin and I have at. In the end, maybe after year five, you figure out what the heck you're doing. You figure you have maybe some level of product market fed and you're scaling and you're like trying to pull out the right levers. <laughs> but unless you want to do that for 10 years, I don't think, I don't think you can, you can make it successful. And maybe you can take money out of different tranches on the way. But I think for me, I don't really know how to start a company in the way. So yeah, I'm definitely, I'm in year two of a 10 year cycle. Right? Yeah. I probably am not going to have any sort of meaningful success again for another three or four. Why did, you know, some of these people become professional investors. I'm curious what your motivation is. I want to go back again. Derek, yeah. you said, you didn't explicitly say PTSD, I think. Definitely you're aware that there's a period of us being in the desert. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, so okay, let's go again. The PT, was it PTSD like not that strong? <laughs> yeah, it was strong. You forgot it. No, it, it's like it was so strong it circled back, and so it's blacked out <laughs> the point where I had PTSD. Actually. No, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. I guess there were definitely some. There are some operators who maybe who cross over to the investing side and are successful at it. But I think to be honest, it's hard to find one. I think it's a lot of maybe like 
mediocre and like people who are like maybe like pretended they operated a company or something like that or whatever and like, they became investors and they're successful like that's very i think it's very hard i think the skill sets are so different i think to be an investor right you have to you're like a great networker you're super extroverted you like to be with people you like to go yeah. on a bunch of topics right and you have to be constantly selling yourself and you're selling right on a big product right because in the end investors it's branding, selling a commodity product, right? A B2B product or something like that. And that's very different than I think founders. Founders are like, no, we're going to differentiate on the product and the delivery right. mechanism right. is kind of like whatever. And so I don't know. Definitely, I'm definitely probably more the operator side. Like I just can't, I just can't imagine like my day-to-day -day being an investor trying to go around there and sell money. Yeah. It just doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't really speak to me. I think the economics are super lucrative. When you think it, look at things from the sure. return side, yeah, being a venture capitalist or PE guy, like it's so much more lucrative. Yeah, um, like the risk is a lot lower. Yeah. Your risk is just so much lower versus you're taking a 10-year bet on something and 100% of you being successful is there. I've been there and it went, I thought I was at the plot level success or an Uber level of success. And it turns out it was nothing. And I had to restart from nothing. Yeah. And now I'm into, I'm almost at five years actually. And now we are actually finding some fit, but it is completely different. And even though that I, I've met a lot of investors and they say that they've been operators, I don't, very few, I can't even think of any that have really done like the 10 year journey and then gone back and been, been a really successful investor. Cause you're right. It just is a completely mm -hmm. different skill set. There were some like, you look at them and you, if you look at the people in traditional worlds, but even so, if you look for just at, just at marketing. Andreessen. That's a great ex example. Yeah. He's, a, but it, I'm just like, you think of things that Mark Andreessen invested in versus like Jeff Jordan. Jeff Jordan is actually a better example of an operator and an investor because right. he was able to invest over and over again and like really be found marketplaces. But the, the purest ones are actually just pure investors. And in a way, because it's a zero sum game, like who gives the cash mm -hmm. versus entrepreneurs can succeed in a hundred different directions doing a hundred different things. But mm. meanwhile, you got to be good at eating in the cave, which is what you're describing. Right. Yeah. It all depends skill sets. I think, like, you know, if you look at, like, the Peter Fenton's of the world, or whatever, it's kind of like world-class investors, right? Like, they were, like, an investor since they came out of the cradle. And that's what you need to do. Because <laughs> I think being an investor is hard. The skill set is something I don't have. And you need to do it for 20, 30 years to be really freaking dead at it. Just like us, right? To be an operator, you got to start young. And you got to grind it out. And you're like, it, it is a skill set. And I think just it's very unlikely for an NBA player to be like, oh, I don't know, like sports are all the same. I'm going to go then play the MLB. Hmm. So those that do, those educators. Right. Oh, Jackson. Yeah, but that's the majority <laughs> can't cross over. And I think it's the same thing with investors and operators. We really wait the two because they're both like somewhat associated with like tech and startups, like, yeah. but they're just such different practitioners. And okay. I think if you, people I think you try to play between the two are like these generalists that don't end up actually going deep on either one. And they end up, I think, becoming the least successful. Do you also believe that it's also, that it's by vertical? Because it's like, you're going back into FinTech. Mm -hmm. You could have gone back into another thing. Kevin did the same. I couldn't mm -hmm. go back into real estate. And I was, it was dead to me. And the PTFC was too strong. I went into another domain. But you definitely get the head start if you're doing it. So do you believe that like, you can only really be world-class if you're going into the same thing? getting deeper with your knowledge, starting young, all this other thing. It sounds like you're describing a lifelong journey, essentially. I, yeah, I think specialization definitely helps. I think logistics or commerce or fin financial services, they're so broad. It'll, you can be specialized in a lot of different areas. But yeah, so I think it does help. 
I think doing consumer is very different than doing like to developers or businesses, enterprise or something like that. So I think it's right. probably almost like I probably have a better luck being an investor than I would be like building a consumer product. Like literally right. no idea. And so I think there's definitely some vertical specificity. I think take fintech, for example, like I'm in, if you look at like unregulated fintech versus tradfi regulated financial yeah. services, which I've come in now, there's like actually way less similarities than you'd think. There's probably more similarities really? to logistics and fintech than regulated banking. They're just so, right. and I'll be totally honest, they're actually much more different than I initially anticipated when I started this, because I feel like I'm learning more than actually utilizing my existing skill sets. Can you go deeper on that? I'm really curious. And so for anybody that's not listening, Plaid, I don't know if you want to ex explain Plaid William, but now you've basically, you bought a bank and you're scaling the bank with yeah. APIs and all those things. And, yeah. and to the outside founder or whoever, you seem similar. No, I think it, it totally does. I thought they were similar too. I can maybe I can go about two minutes. So Plaid, I started Plaid back in 2012. And what Plaid does is a lot, it's an API platform to enable people who are building in financial services to ingest and utilize data from traditional financial institutions. So the classic example there is I want to go pay somebody and I need to go hook up my Bank of America account to this third-party app, like a Cash App or a Venmo or whatnot, to go pay somebody. I need to pull money from my Bank of America account to send to Kevin's Chase. Plaid, we power all that infrastructure. And then at Column, what we do is I actually bought a nationally chartered bank about <laughs> three and a half years ago, and it's rebuilt. Which is freaking awesome, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> awesome. It's also very hard. A lot of The headline's awesome. No, the, the headline's like, <laughs> ETMC is real. <laughs> bought a bank, rebuilt the entire thing from scratch to be a platform, which the broader point that we're trying to prove here if you think about a traditional financial institution, you bank with it when you're a kid, and then maybe, you know, they're going to do your corporate bond offer, like your Fortune 50 company or something like that. It's weird. There's very little corollary to other industries where there's so little specialization when you have one company that can go so horizontal. Thesis is actually the financial institution is probably best fit as a platform where there was actually another company distributing those financial products. And so a vertical staff software company is probably better suited to delivering a financial product to their customer than a bank is. It's like Stripe is probably better or Shopify. They're better situated to selling financial products to their customers than Bank of America is. Yet, all these software companies are not going to be banks themselves. There's right. a lot of nuances to that. And so there needs to be this specialized bank that is regulated, that is a bank, but the delivery mechanism is via APIs and technologies and distributing through these third parties, as opposed to directly to a consumer or to a business itself. It's actually and, so interesting. It, I knew about this. It's more interesting the way that you described it than what I originally thought, which was already interesting. <laughs> yeah. the, because it, it makes a lot of sense. Shopify essentially has a, is a giant pipe, millions of buyers inside the pipe. They need a specialized set of financial services. And no one is really able to deliver the backend infrastructure, so to speak, for that set of financial services. Am I saying it right? Yeah, exactly. I'll give, give it a more niche example, which I like. So take construction. There's this company out there that maybe some of your listeners have heard of. It's called Procore. I think it's an amazing little company. It's like, yeah. I've never heard of it. I'm like bastardized stat or something, but it's 90% of contractors who have over 100 employees use this software. Like they know contractors like cold, right? Like they know it. 
They know their problems. They build great software for them. They have this crazy distribution. If I'm a bank and I'm trying to like go sell to that farm, sell to that construction company, Procore is going to eat my lunch. And so for me, it's how do I enable Procore to actually build a very niche customized financial product to sell to their customers, right? I want to go sell to Procore. I don't want to go sell to 150,000 contractors out there. I don't have a competitive advantage there. I don't know right. what the needs are. They probably need this very cool specialized project I didn't really know of. And instead, banks have historically just try to huck down these like generalizable products. Right. And so my goal is how do I set up all of these end software companies to build and distribute really great financial products? I think Procore, they said in their filings or whatnot, that they're, they think in the next five to 10 years, they're going to generate more money in financial services than they are. Wow. And I think that will be time and time again. Because Shopify, Shopify generates way more money in financial services than they sell. Right. They do. You look at across all these vertical software companies and it's, and that's where we're going to see this big explosion. Everybody over the past five years have been so obsessed with like consumer fintech, like the, it's awesome, right? I don't want to shit on sure. it. Like the chimes, the Vembos, the Square Cash, those are great. Really right. where the next wave is going to be is in these very specific, vertical specific software companies. That's where the next wave of financial services is going to be. It's interesting. I like, I, hmm. I, you're, what you're speaking to me in such an, a way that is really foundational to, I run, now I run practice specifically for solopreneurs, specifically service-based solopreneurs. Yeah. And what we built a bunch of stuff around it, but really what you discover is the fundamentals is how people get paid. How often can they get paid? Mm -hmm. What ways can they organize getting paid for them? Like, for example, payment plan, like really matter this type of customer. And so I don't want to build that as much as possible. Right? So that's why, and it actually speaks to the name. Naming is so important in my mind for this type of company that you build. Which is why Column is exactly, I want your company to be for me if I use you. Yeah. So going back to the initial question, so how much, how much, like, what does it entail to actually buy and run a bank versus building a software company like Plaid, where you think there's a lot of parallels? Like, do you, did you have to hire a lot of people that are from the banking industry? Did you have to take that on yourself and develop that knowledge internally? How did that work? Yeah, I mean, it, so the answer is yes. So we have way more specialization in specific roles than your average technology company, more so applied. Because I generally think over the next five to 10 years, technology is going to become more commoditized. And so if your only differentiation is I can write better software than my competitors can, that's a pretty weak leg to stand on. And so for me, I think it could be like competitive modes, which is one of the reasons I became a bank is because it also, not only can I differentiate by having these technical barriers, I also have this regulation barriers as well. Right. In order to do that, you actually have to be a bank. You have to have the risk and the compliance, the regulatory and the legal. And all that stuff is not something that you can just learn on the job. It requires decades of experience and understanding the nuance and the language and all of that stuff. You can argue whether that should or should not be. It's just like the fact of life. And so if you look at our, our team is much more heavily rated towards these specialists than right. standard EPD engineering product design sales that a, a, new, a normal tech company has. And I'd say I knew that getting in, but it's actually been more so the case than I actually ever thought. Because banking is very tightly regulated. It's a very insular world. And that there's some negatives and positives to that. But that's our big value add, right? Because I can go to Julian yeah, and yeah. be like, hey, use me. 
because you're not going to want to do this. And so right. I can charge a pretty nice premium on top of that. Right. I think it's an area that is why it is somewhat commoditized because it's banking. The delivery that I'm in, it, there's not a lot of competition in the space. Your question is, Column is not backed by anybody else. It's, you're self-funding it. And Plaid was famously backed by venture capital, took on hundreds of millions of dollars. Do you have any great war stories from Bull and also how much different is it building a company that's self-funded? Because personally, I think that being venture funded, it's got a lot of pros and cons. One of the pros, obviously being capital and you could hire people, but also I think one of the other pros can be once you do like product market fit, the pressure is really on to push you. So any war stories or like the differences of building a company that's now not venture funded? Yeah, so, so we at Plaid, we have absolutely incredible investors. I'm very lucky. Me not taking money was nothing to do with our existing investors. I think it was just the desire to, to, to try something different. I also think that like it or not, the how venture work, it, it forces you to think in kind of five to 10 years. So they have these fun yeah. life, like they need their money. Yep. I get it. If I'm them, it's screw you. I want to do something for 20 plus years. And I think that's very challenging to do with a different type. I mean, you can do it with some investors. It just makes it a little bit sure. Yeah. I also think the thing with venture is it's crack. It's, it's really hard to get off of. It's nice, but it's really hard to get off of. And the nice thing about if you sell fund or you're bootstrapped, I'm preserving optionality. And so I don't know, like, maybe there's a right. chance in the next couple of years we take on money, maybe we take it in 10 years. I don't really know, but I have full options in front of myself. Yeah. And if I would have taken like a bit of money, they would have like, it, it would have put me on the clock and then I probably would have right. wanted to go right. faster or move harder or whatnot. And then get yep. picking the money. I also think, I think for a lot of first time founders, venture provides a structure. It provides a framework. It provides somebody kind of like whipping you and be like, let's go, let's go. I don't really have that anymore. A lot of gumption right. drive. Like I want to make this work. And so I don't think I need, I don't need that. But mm. costs to me at this point are like, they don't really have the, the concept on that way pros here. So I think the other thing is as a founder, you guys probably already know this, you dilute, you, you do a majority of your dilution in the first two or three rounds. Yes. Growth rounds after product market fit. If you get taken like founder refreshers and all that, it's like, it can be like somewhat dilution, dilution insensitive. In the early days, you're like, oh yeah, here's 25% of my company. It's crazy. Absolutely. And there's one point there. Can you, and if you're not willing to talk about it, when we can cut this out as well, can you talk about the refresh portion of like when you do raise venture and later stage rounds? Like, what did you actually mean there? Yeah. So, so if you think about, if you think about dilution, right? I guess like, people can't, can't really see my hands, but your seed round, your seed round of your notes, or whatever, are going to be like, Pretty dilute. I'd say maybe not the last year, but like this year, kind of back, back when we were all starting yeah. Normal dilution. You're like, I'm going to go with like 30%. Like, yeah. we get two years back to the $10 million valuation or something like that. And then your Series A is going to be a little less dilutive. And as you get larger, you're raising like 300 million bucks, of 10 to $15 billion valuation or something. Just inherently, that's not that crazy dilutive. And right. then usually at that point, you're four, five, six years in your cycle. And so you as a founder, you're like fully vested. Usually a lot of times what happens, investors will come in and you can actually start to do founder refresh investors, right? So I'm going to go to a certain part of this company and I'm actually going to get that over another four to five years, just like you would with an employee. Any employee who hits the whole vesting schedule, usually going to give them a refresher and so they still have forward visibility into that. Into that. And when you calculate that out, plus the gross stage dilution, 
You right. end up actually not diluting a ton of the company as you start to get into these growth stage rounds. Obviously, you have to stay there for a while, but it's relatively insensitive. And so when you look at your, hey, I used to own 50% and now I own 10%, that usually happens in seed, series A, series B. Right. But for me, if I look at it, I'm like, wow, looking at that math, if I can survive <laughs> as far as I can, it's just, it's like free money. It's free money from me. This is a bit of inside baseball, but it's super right to point that out. It's true. I don't know where you were at, like in terms of ownership, but like at some point you just start to realize that the level of ownership, if your company is successful, is actually not that meaningful. I don't know how you feel about this, but it's like, I was talking to the founder of ConvertKit the other day. His name is Nathan Berry. His company is in, we would call I don't know, I know the numbers, but in the tens of millions of dollars of revenue, still he's never taken a venture with. And so he owns almost all of it. And it's, it is a couple of things that are going on there. One is he's off the traditional venture path. So is he growing a hundred percent year over year? If he's not growing a hundred percent year over year, even with that tens of millions of dollars of revenue, maybe he can't even get venture in the same right. way that he could because it's not growing in the same, to the same scale. It. So you got to like figure out this math where it's not just how much am I willing to spend today? Because some of these people, some listeners say here, are maybe willing to say, oh, I'll fund the seed round, but am I willing to fund the series A round? Ooh, I can. can fund the series B round. So you kind of have to figure out your risk profile forward to say, I got to keep growing. And I'm also curious as to whether feel you have any, the pressure helps you in any way, or maybe you have different pressure because it's your cash or something. No, here, I, I think this is a very valid point, right? Like the, the longer you wait to take on venture, you're increasing the risk, right? Because people mm -hmm. in the earlier stage rounds, people are more forgiving. They're willing to be like, yeah. oh, this metric's off, whatever, it's fine, it's early, yeah. right? But as you start to get, as you start to get higher up the, high up the value chain, yeah, the metrics start to get pretty damn tight and that stuff matters a ton. Right. I think if you can bootstrap it, I think that for as long as you can, I think it is pretty lucrative. You look at Maybe you'll listen to a company called like Checkout, right? It started this guy in GM, right? He didn't take on venture until way in his life cycle. And now he owns 60% right. of his company. And he right. is probably, if you look at it from a pure cash perspective or pure market cap perspective, he's wealthier than both of the Collison brothers, even right. though Checkout is meaningfully smaller than Stripe. I think mm -hmm. there's be like this interesting graph where it shows like your average company growth and your ownership percentage. Yeah. And, and I think there's so many founders that own 50 to 100% of these like single digit billion dollar companies that are way wealthier and way more successful than these like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 billion dollar companies. They don't have the same hype around them, the same not like, you know, same brand. But I think when you look at it just from a pure success financially perspective, these guys that have started these 500 to $2 billion companies, they own the majority of, are usually some of the wealthiest and most successful people. I'm curious and to question and I'll answer it myself for, for all you guys, would you rather a larger company with a lower ownership percentage? So you could say it's more impactful, right? So say it's a hundred billion dollar company and you own five or 10% or you take what it, what it was Aaron Levy when they IPO and I think he got diluted down yeah, like 3%, 3, 3 yeah. or something crazy like that. And also his, it, him building that company back up till like overtake Dropbox with a whole other story. My, my personal perspective would be, and I, I tell founders not to worry about the dilution at all. It doesn't matter. Like when you're going and looking to raise, so my, so for Airhouse, like 
we could have taken like a $10 million seed at, I don't know, 20. And this is before like the crazy 2020. Right. Yeah, this is when I started in 2018. I don't know, $10 million, $10 million Series A and taking like 25% dilution or something like that. I was like, no, I don't really want to do that because I want to make sure that I want to get the right markings. I'm still not sure how to navigate this new company and I want to save the optionality. So to have a lower valuation and may maybe take higher dilution and then just take money as we need it. Knowing before I did the opposite. So it was ship, like I was going and I would, I had basically a John Doe bid and Mark and Dries, and I don't think actually Mark and Dries was going to do the deal, but I convinced John Doerr that he was going to. So I bid the valuation. I think we were at like, 220 million post and we had you know two million dollars in gross revenue it was just out, outrageous and this is in 2015 when uber was all the hype and we were the uber of yeah. and looking back at that and at the time it's i want to protect my dilution and all this stuff but like i removed all of this optionality for me so like for me personally like i'm out now to build the biggest most meaningful company even if that does mean meaning owning less ownership but i'm curious of what but also on on the way and, and as you get to five years six years taking re refresh grants and all that of course i'll do that i'm curious what you guys think about doing this for your second time hey go ahead william i'll go after it's all right you're also one of my best friends runs like a, a very large successful tech company as well. And it kind of was this argument, would you rather own 10% of a $10 billion company or 100% of a billion dollar company? And I think there's really good pros and cons of both, right? Because the $10 billion company gives you probably more impact, gives you better brand, you have more influence. You can probably be part of conversations that you aren't part of as, as a billion dollar founder or something like that. On the other side, owning 100% of a billion dollar company, I think gives you a huge amount of life flexibility. And I think it gives you a lot of control, how you spend your life, how you spend your time and what you want to do with your company. So I probably personally would rather own 100% of a billion dollar company than 10% of a tech client. I think to your point though, I think the difference between 20% and 40% is negligible. I think the difference between 50% and 100% is not sure. Like, right. the majority of your company or no. Yeah. And because I do agree. I think if you're just going to like, you're going to be like, hey, I'm going to take the crack. I'm going to go to the venture route. I agree with you. Fuck it. Let's just go. Just go do it. Long term mm -hmm. difference between five and 7%. It's irrelevant. Yep. Yeah. Just grow big. But I think when you're early, you make that decision of, am I, do I want to long term own 10% or do I want to long term own 70%? That's right. a psychological thing and a strategic thing that you can think through. And the only reason I'm on one side is because I think it's very easy to go one way. It's crazy to go the other way. Maybe you can like some crazy recap thing, but let's go. Let's... You can, you only have one shot at getting to the 70%. Once you make any choice, or actually I'll even say, even if you have a bad couple of years and you need the money all of a sudden, yeah. then all of a sudden that ability yeah. to keep 70% is gone. If you're at all on that trend, it's my issue as is. For some reason, I don't know why, but it's like, I feel like I want to be Jack Dorsey instead of just some anonymous hedge fund dude or something wrong with me. So I will take the larger company with the larger impact and the larger brand. But I'll tell you what I discovered is I used to think that my personal brand mattered and I discovered that it doesn't. After you run a company, people know the name of your company. I don't yep. give a shit if they know my name. That doesn't matter to me the way that I thought. I, I totally agree with all that. I think it's hard, right? I think it's a, it's a, it's a lecture to have either one. I was over the weekend, I was hanging out with this guy. He owned this, owned this company you guys have never heard of. 
And he was like, oh yeah, man, I feel like nobody's ever heard of me, all this other company, blah, blah, blah. I feel like we're super successful. He lives out this, uh, down south. And he kind of had like, this like FOMO for Silicon Valley right. a little bit. And I talked to him and started getting out some financials and stuff like that. He owned 100% of this company. It, it's putting off about $500 million in EBITDA that he take every single <laughs> And he's then like, he started two other companies. He has this like amazing foundation. He's built up with his school. So like, dude, I'm like, dude, you are winning. There's like, there's like a, there's like a ladder here. Like you're like at the top and like everybody is at the bottom fucking around. Like you figured mm -hmm. it out. And obviously that's like a such far extreme of success, but it is interesting, right? Like no matter which side you pick, there's always a little bit of about Right, of course. I'm on either side. Yeah. It's a random headshot the random hedge fund guys taking $2 billion in, in profits a year is, oh man, like I can't get invited to Sun Valley. And the founder who like started like a hypey company gets to go yeah. hang out at Sun Valley and is like not near successful. So there's always a little bit of fun. It's fun in New York, you get invited to the hedge fund breakfasts. Okay. And so what happens, William, I'm sure you at some point been to like some of them, these either hedge funds or private equity funds is like the head of the dude. It would be like, he will talk to you. And he'll invite you to a private breakfast place. And like a waiter comes in and they're just serving you. And there's like caviar and all this crap. I remember really being excited by the idea of this happening. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, I don't have the commensurate wealth, like proportionate to, to any of this at all. So actually I'd much rather have the wealth than not have the breakfast. Like the breakfast <laughs> is fucking useless. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe yeah, my thinking is wrong a little. Yeah, no, I think life is always just, are we chasing status? Are we chasing fame? Are we chasing yeah. money? Are we chasing relevance? What are we chasing? You know, you probably go through different life and you start to optimize for different things. I think I constantly have this quandary, which is like, how much fame or how much status should I be chasing? I think right. objectively, I'm chasing money. Like we probably all are to an extent. And then- well, Yeah, we, definitely. Yeah. Do we tackle, are we chasing control or are we, or are we chasing status and fame? Because I think those two things are very different. Yeah intend right. to be di diametrically opposed. Right. And I constantly am figuring it out and I don't know which one. <laughs> for me, yeah, it's constantly changing. Sure. I'm curious, do you have any war stories from Plaid? Oh my God, too many. I think, I think probably- what, what can you say? Come on, give us some juice here. The I founders want to know, when did you almost not make payroll or like, how bad did it get? Or I have war stories two weeks ago. So like, yeah, you know, I don't even know. Hey, whatever you got. No, I have too many. And probably, mo unfortunately, you guys know it's like the really good ones you can probably never tell. But I'll tell yeah, one yeah. because yeah, it involves shitting on a VC firm I dislike. So we were. It was at our. It was at our Series A. And we were like, we were just starting to like take off. We were like, we were cool enough. We had millions of dollars in revenue enough. Like we know when we pitch VCs like that, you wanted to invest. You weren't like begging them. And so went through pretty good round, a bunch of people, a bunch of people wanted to give us money. And there was one VC that was a super name brand. Everyone would have heard of them. And we picked them and we were like, cool, let's do it. We signed the term sheet. We then did the rounds with all the other investors, called them up and like, hey, you're amazing. Let's keep the conversation going to next year. We're probably going to pass this round, but let's stay in contact. And so we, like, we just rejected all these guys who spent a lot of time, a lot of time to the term sheet. And we like hang out with this guy, with these investors, cause like they're an investor now, sign the term sheet, money was supposed to come on Monday. And we had this kind of competitor, it was kind of like the old annoying competitor in the room called Yoda. And they found out that we signed a term sheet and they put together a patent litigation lawsuit and sued us on Friday. 
And we were like, oh shit, thank God we just signed this term sheet because this is going to be expensive. This is terrible. And, and ended up, Greg told the venture fund, they're like, okay, yeah, okay, cool, whatever. And we're probably three weeks away from missing payroll at this point, but whatever, money's coming on Monday. Right. On, on Sunday, this fund calls us like, yeah, we're just like doing some follow-up diligence, had heard that blah, 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 <laughs> the litigation, and I just don't make it something we're comfortable doing. And we're like, oh, no, we signed the fucking document, bro. Give us some money. And they ended up backing out, which is, this is like a, this is like a, wow. And so like everybody have heard of them. And just nodded in class act, just like total assholes, weren't classy about it, just got scared because like litigation, what the fuck guys, come on, grow up. That's nothing, to be clear. Like We like creamed this company like nine months late, ended up making money out of the deal. F you. Right. And it was terrible. And so we had to like go hat in hand to these other investors and we're like, hey guys, remember us? We like the assholes who rejected you. By the way, we got a term sheet pulled and we got sued. And so... Please help us out. And our number two on oh. the list that we picked was this fund called NEA. We loved them. They were great. Ended up going with another fund. And uh, I'll never forget, there's this partner they're like super cool about. They're like, hey guys, totally get it. This sucks. By the way, burn's going to go way up. So we got to pay a bunch of lawyer fees. This sucks for you. We don't want you guys to be diluted because of this. So actually, we'll just proactively do a high evaluation so you guys have the same dilution. Hell and, yeah. And money like three, three days later. And they were just like, Fucking wow, money. that's great. I ended up making the same amount of money, so I worked out on both sides. But they're <laughs> yeah. like, and this other fund, just total assholes about it. And I like, and I like to talk to this fund every now and then now too. And they like tried to laugh about the situation. I was like, no, guys, I <laughs> hate you. You were yeah, three weeks away like, from payroll. person I could talk to. Uh, oh, yeah. So <laughs> that, that's when we got our term sheet pulled. And to this day, I've rarely ever heard of another company who literally got after their signed term sheet. Had yeah. wire instructors, instructions they pulled. It was just like crazy. I've never heard of that before. With all the diligence done, signed term sheet, wire instructions, I've never heard of that before. Yeah. That's that crazy. Especially. And a, a, a top tier fund as well. Oh, yeah. Top two or three. Single word. There's an expression I learned from VCs back in the day when people do this to you. It's called. The expression that I've heard from it, he's this, this is called grin fucking. As they're smiling, <laughs> they're like, hey, yeah, absolutely. They're completely fucking you over at the same time as they're doing it. It's, pretty, and it's interesting, benefited also from somebody probably looking at this fund and being like, I want to kill those guys. I hate those guys. Yeah. So I'm going to do this. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 there was maybe this implicit agreement when we sent out the NEA. We're like, hey, we're all going to badmouth this VC, right? Yeah. We all win. Right? It's fine. <laughs> But that it brings up a great point. I don't think a lot of people that are like, if they're either like a first time venture founder realize how hard these rounds are actually to get them across the line, what it actually takes, like from the initial pitches to the initial term sheets, to the negotiations, to the diligence, to like money hitting the bank. And then I've talked before with Jillian, like how many times we, how close we've been to actually running out of money. Like it's very common to be weeks away from, from running out of the, not making payroll and yeah. no, nobody really talks about this kind of stuff. Yeah. They're very they, successful companies. Like expect, I'm sorry, you guys expect, are doing great. It's crazy. They expect the founders to be normal after this, right? Right. right. Round after yeah. round. They're right. like, oh yeah, these people I'm sure are very mentally well adjusted, even though 
weeks of not making payroll, someone pulling a term sheet at the A, all these other things that happen to you, and then you're supposed to go to a party and just be like a completely normal human as if you have normal human experiences. Yeah. You don't. You're gone. Right? Way gone. It's a weird, it's a weird, the whole Silicon Valley fundraising thing, it's like such a weird psychological thing. It's like you have these people, they do these like parades to these different offices, and you're oh, like, yeah. there? can I have some money? Like, here's all about me. It's so weird. <laughs> it's like weird, like adult level interviewing with like higher consequences. And when you get larger, you're like, okay, now you know, like, now you're going to like stop, you're doing like the sovereign wealth fund ter- circuit. And then, you know, when you're public, then it gets to go to like the mutual fund circuit, right? It's the same thing. Right. But right. It's, it is just, it's so weird. It's like a weird societal construct we, we, we've gotten ourselves into. When you guys were um, scaling your companies and had some tractions, I don't know, A, A B rounds or something like that. Did you ever have a, I remember this myself. Did you ever have like your first experience with a high profile person that you hired that actually quit and you thought it was like the end of your? Yeah, absolutely. Like a lot <laughs> of old boys. <laughs> tell me, tell us some or one. I, I definitely had somebody who like rage quit like three weeks. And oh, I spent shit. like three months trying to convince them and sell them. And they got in the list. It was like a fucking hot mess. Like what? And it was, and looking back, you're like, oh my God, that person was toxic. Thank God I didn't hire the person. Mm-hmm. But I think even more so than investors, like you, you, you live in fear of your employees so much more than your investors because you have so much writing, you have so much emotion and you have so much time invested in these. Right. And yeah, and I've had it happen so many times and it's absolutely terrible. It's one person three weeks in and they're like, this is not what I signed up for. This is like way too of a hot mess. I thought you guys had your shit way more one guy he was like a head of support which is something a senior title but it was actually pretty poor address and it was in three weeks and he just stopped responding to emails <laughs> and he took the meetings didn't quit just like ghosted all of us and we're like oh man like probably some like health then and like and he responded to one text message like oh yeah i'll be online in a second and like he went on for this for three to four weeks and like it was a total mindfuck we were like, what do we do? Like, maybe they died. What had happened? You're like trying to do step down one-on-ones with your team and you're trying to play it off. They're like, oh yeah, so they have some like health reasons. Like there's some personal stuff. Like, sorry about this. Don't worry about it. And then, but then you're like, what do you do? Do you like kind of like fire the person without another story? Do you hire somebody else? Yeah, yeah. You like put in this like I've... really crazy situation. And like, we honestly didn't know what to do. And the crazy part of it is we finally fired the person, ended up getting like some gear back a couple months later. And this person asked me for a reference check for a job like two years ago. Wow. Do you remember what happened six years ago? How is it? How do you think this is appropriate? And I was like, yeah, I, I literally I was like, hey, I will absolutely do a reference track. I just want to be like very transparent that it will be a terrible reference track. So I'm not quite mm-hmm. sure you want to use me as a reference. And they were like, oh, that's like super sad to hear. That's really disappointing. <laughs> you ghosted me in the company for three months. It was crazy. Really, it's awesome. But also, I think for people that aren't founders, they're so surprised. Maybe not so much on the VC side, but on the, like, the employee side, how honest you'll be with another founder on like how this person really was. Like I, for one, it's my duty to warn or if they're amazing to tell them how great they were. And people just don't realize how much weight that really carries. Cause like you yeah. as a founder, you've been in that seat before. And the same thing with the VCs. If you have term sheet from X to this unnamed firm that you named William, like I'm, I want to know who that is after, after this, but like those are real 
things and they carry so much weight for me that for I, sure. I don't think people really understand. And also that the under now, especially with Telegraph and WhatsApp groups and all these other things like stuff gets around so quickly and founders, I think, because we share this, I don't know, this bond that we're just willing to share a lot more and we're just a lot more open because we know what everybody else has been through. So I remember the closest one that happened to me is when I was doing an early product interview here at this company and we, someone had like slipped through the process where I had interviewed them two or three. And by the way, I have a hardcore interviewing process, but somehow this person has gone through. I get to the reference check stage. I call a high level founder that I had not channeled to, but I had never personally talked to. I get on the phone with them. It's one of those people who like, you go to the, you see them on Zoom and they have no furniture, but they were extremely rich, but they just never gotten around to buying furniture. like one of those guys. <laughs> and so I'm like, hey, so what's the situation with this dude? He goes, how big is your company? At the time, I said, 15 people. Goes, Do not hire them under any circumstances. I said, okay, what is it? He said, this person needs to learn how to be, this, be a product manager at a really big company before they actually do it. Yeah. They're not, they shouldn't learn their training wheels with you. No way this person would ever say that on an official reference call, if not from a really nice reference that's like really well connected to me. So it's just like, there's so much going back to that PTSD resonates with me, William, that you're saying that you have PTSD, you use that word, really validates that I think people, I really appreciate it. It's because we all go through the same kind of trauma. We don't want this other person to go through it. Yeah, no, references are like when people provide references, I don't know, like they're a total waste. I don't think I've ever actually, I don't think I've ever really utilized, learned something from a reference that somebody provided. Usually all the references are through batch channel references. That's actually right. The problem is when you're breaking a new industry or doing something or like you're hiring a specialist and you don't have a bad channel, it's like scary, especially on the exec side. Because, right. you know, you can ask, sure you can ask them for the references, but like it's going to be a wash. And so it is challenging, but I, I totally agree with you, Julian. Getting references from other founders, from other people is super critical. I think it's always, it's a duty that founders do have too, to be honest. Cause I think there's always a it little is. bit of like, yes. there's a little bit of like guilt. Cause you're like, how oh, no, I like fired this person or whatever. I don't want to help them out. I don't want to like totally screw them over or give them a bad reference, but I think it is pretty important to be totally brutally honest. Another yeah. quick instinct. Which is an interesting thing I want to hear as someone who has fired and hired a fair amount of people. You've certainly done yeah. And what I want to hear is typically you have this one feeling about someone and you're like, huh, like maybe, I, maybe this person is not as good as I thought they were. And then you're like, and you like second guess yourself for a while. And then a second thing happens. Then you second guess yourself for some time. And then a third thing happens and then you let them go. I want to know if now that you've done it so many times. Do you just instantly let them go the first time that you have the experience? What is your level to pre you of, I've done this enough times, so I know when my gut is right. And I know when I have this feeling I need to respond in just. I, I feel like the standard trope is like, you, it's like, you've never fired, you've never fired somebody too early. Which I think it's totally yeah. right. Mm -hmm. Every time you fire somebody, you're like, oh my God, this is great. Like, why didn't I fire them three months ago? But it's such a hard lesson to actually like put into practice. It is. I think I, I like still to this day, I think I've had people way too late because you get so emotionally invested in it. There's always an excuse. But yeah, w once you get in your brain that somebody's a low performer, it's so hard to go back from. 
And yeah, if I was a good person, I would just fire them super quick and just be <laughs> done with it. I will say I've after hired and hiring literally thousands of people, right. I still probably fall to the same mistake that I did when I was like 24 and I fired people <laughs> too late because I think there's just such an emotional component to it. That's really hard. Great. Do you guys want to end it on that note? Yeah. And yeah. Hiring people. Just firing people. <laughs> yep. Love it. William, thank you so much for your time. Now, as everybody that's not a founder or working at a startup is having vacations and off in sunny places we're working, hope everybody enjoyed the episode. And thanks again for joining us, William. Kevin and Julian, I do appreciate it. And, uh, and let me know, it, send me an email if you want to know the name of this shitty VC firm that. Uh, oh, yes. Incoming. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Hey, thanks, guys. Planner. Bye-bye. Yeah, we keep it real and we bring you the facts. It's the second time founders podcast. Talking tech news. The show is a must. Not some billionaire trying to sell you their book. We're coming from a real place. Plenty ups and downs. Got some insights. Join the discussion now. We being honest and raw. Giving you real talk. We've been at the bottom and made it happen and much more. The second time founders podcast. More building, less talk.